you wanted more live Nerdist Writers panels. You've got more live Nerdist Writers panels. We've got a bunch coming up in September and October. September 13th at Meltdown. Our old pal Damon Lindelof is back, the co-creator of Lost and the showrunner of The Leftovers. We'll talk about that show and anything you want to talk about. We've also got Andrew Kreisberg, the co-creator of Supergirl, Arrow, Legends of Tomorrow, um, Great guy, uh, Noelle Valdivia, uh, the sister of Laura, who writes dramas. She's currently on Manhattan and wrote for Masters of Sex. And finally, Kit Boss, who's written for Bob's Burgers. Uh, he's on iZombie now. Really good guy. That's September 13th at Meltdown. And then finally, this big one, September 21st at Largo at the Coronet, uh, we're doing... An evening of the masters of the family sitcom. We've got Norman Lear, the creator of All in the Family, The Jeffersons, a million shows. Phil Rosenthal, the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond. And Steve Levitan, the co-creator of Modern Family. It should be a terrific conversation with these three guys. All three are funny, charming, have lots to say, have been in the business for years. Uh, You don't want to miss that. That's September 21st at Largo. But, Ben, where do I get tickets for these things, and how do I support A26 LA and A26 Boston? I'll tell you. Go to writerspanel.tumblr.com. I started a Tumblr, so you can find out about all of this stuff. Writerspanel.tumblr.com. Follow it, and you'll find out about this. And we're adding, there are going to be two more live panels uh, in, that will come up for sale in the next couple of weeks. So come check it out. Please come to these panels. Uh, I always enjoy doing them. I enjoy meeting all of you who listen to the show. And uh, we want you there to ask questions. That's what I miss having done all of these studio panels is you guys asking great questions of uh, the creators. So come on out, writerspanel.tumblr.com, and follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, uh, for details there. Hope to see you soon. Now entering... Nerdist.com. Hi guys, sorry, this one begins rather abruptly because someone pressed record too late. I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus. But it was someone. Uh, but you still get the gist of it. It's Noah Hawley you hear talking straight away uh, about his Fargo adaptation, and then it kind of just goes into the conversation from there. Please enjoy it. Today's episode was recorded at the ATX Television Festival in Austin. Uh, season 4, which was this year... First weekend in June 2015, we had so much fun at ATX this year. It was bigger and better than it ever was. I don't know why you're not coming next year. Go to atxfestival.com and get your badge for next year. Don't wait to find out who's going to be there, because if you wait to find out who's going to be there, you're going to miss an opportunity to get your badge. Go to atxfestival.com. I mean, yeah. you know, and that's liberating on a certain front because, you know, if you're going to be a car wreck, you might as well be an epic car wreck, you know. And, and, and you know, but, but once we started getting the cast that we, that we were getting, and it's, you know, it's an interesting exercise because it's one thing on the page to say, okay, well, you've kind of got the voice. 
but then you know you also have to make the film you know and in an emulation of two of the greatest filmmakers of all time and so how do you translate that and a lot of it was about tone and and uh you know, the network had said to me when we were prepping and I was showing them actors that I liked, they kept saying, you know, it's not a comedy, right? And so I actually went in to them and I had made this bar graph because I thought that was funny of like, <laughs> you know, comedy in the Coen Brothers movies with, you know, Raising Arizona on one side and, and Miller's Crossing on the other. And, and uh, I just said, look, it's like if I got Javier Bardem to be in the show and everyone's high-fiving in the halls, right? And then I gave him that haircut, and, and, you know, and you'd all be horrified, but, and the Coens gave him that haircut and they laughed at his face for like 30 minutes. <laughs> but there's nothing funny about it in the movie. It's this really unsettling and kind of creepy detail. So I think the word comedy, it's, you know, just because something feels funny or feels like it's funny to me doesn't mean my intention is for it to be comic, you know? And Graham, you, you turned a short story into six seasons of television, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, we really drew that story out. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, the, the, the story was really, our pilot really was a straight adaptation. You know, we just took that, that novella, Fire in the Hole, and turned that into the pilot. Um, the problem then became, okay, what do we do for the second episode? And then for the next, you know, 77 episodes. So... Um, it's uh, these guys have said you're, you're. I mean, part of it is well, what does the network want? I mean, what is their? Do they want Elmore Leonard? You know, is that what they bought, or are they just interested in these characters? And so when we went on the pitch trail, um, the reason we we chose FX and and they chose us is because John Landgraf uh, was a big Elmore Leonard fan, so he supported trying to do a story that was really in keeping with Elmore's writings. And then, yeah, we had to make up our own stories. Um, and a lot of it, we had a huge wealth of written material that we could not steal from. Um, his books, you know, and uh, th there were times in the first season where he would say, uh, that shootout, that's from Pronto, you know? And it's like, <laughs> is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Um, and, uh, and there were times where we, we actually went and got made a deal. Hey, we want to take this central thing from writing the rap. Can we do that? And we made a little side deal. Um, but it was really, yeah, it's, it's a world that he created. It's an approach to character and story and, we just, and, and, and dialogue. And we just had to try and stay true to that as best we could for six years. Yeah, and uh, and both with uh, with you and Noah, it was sort of a case of you know getting the rights to one particular title, but then sort of adapting from a, uh, a creative artist their their whole body of, of work to some extent in terms of the spirit and the tone and that sort of thing. I, I'm not supposed to say that out loud because we, <laughs> we don't own the rights to to all the other stuff. But but yeah, I mean, I feel like it's. Uh... You know, part of the fun of it is, is you know, obviously there are these elements for, for fans where you want to lay things in that, that homages to other moments that, that, that are meaningful. But, <clears throat> you know, I think one of the genius things about Brian's show is, is the way that, that, that you took the way things happened in the movies and you reversed them, you turned them on their head. You know, you, you had Will Graham in a cell and Hannibal Lecter coming to visit him and it's that moment where you realize that you're doing what the movie did, you're just doing it backwards or differently that, that is so exciting, I think. So, 
you know, at the end of the first year, I'm going to spoil things for people if they haven't seen it, but, you know, we do this, this one-year jump, and we, um, you know, and we make uh, Alison Tolman's character pregnant. So suddenly it kind of is the movie. So then people have these expectations, even if they don't realize they have these expectations, that we, when we send her out in the final moment, she's going to do what Marge did and end up at that cabin. And, and then when we don't do that, um, it's it's surprising because you know you've created this expectation um, and laid and laid that groundwork I think and that was my goal was always to make something unpredictable that felt inevitable in the end. Right, and it seems like the more recent that another filmed work work based on that story has been out there and how fresh that is in the viewers' minds, the more it sort of benefits you. To, to play with that and, and to change it around and to, to go further away from whatever it is that you're adapting, I would think. Absolutely. I think the, you know, one of the things with Hannibal is that there, there's been so many adaptations and we've seen so many films about the character that we got to put an orange cone up, essentially, and just steer around some of those things. So when we entered that territory, we had to enter it with a different alchemy of character. And uh, that's been the most fun, satisfying thing about Hannibal is just shifting the characters from an origin point and then seeing how wild the tale will whip the further away we get from that origin. Right, right. And, um, and uh, you know, another thing I was, I was wondering about was uh, what, what's sort of like the biggest mistake that, uh, that writers tend to make when they're... Adapt. Procrastination. Procrastination. <laughs> That's the biggest mistake we all tend to make, right? Yes. But, uh, but, but in terms of, I mean, when you see other adaptations out there or, or whatnot that you, you see that, you know, what's the sort of, what's sort of the biggest pitfall that people tend to fall into when approaching this? Approaching adapting something? Um, I think if you're, if you're staying true to the DNA of characters, you can take liberties with the characters. If you, if you change something fundamental about a character, like if I made Hannibal a veterinarian <laughs> instead of a cannibal psychiatrist, that's an affront to the material. So I think there's, there's, there's a, a little wiggle room to enhance because you're telling a story in a much longer format than than what was anticipated for the origin material. So we're 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 at 39 episodes now of so you know roughly 35 hours of material where there's only been 2 hours per story in the past and uh, it allows you to sow the, your own seeds. And Nolan Graham, you have a thought on that? Um, well, yeah, I think you, I think the only reason to, to adapt anything is, um, you know, certainly something that's, that's older or, you know, something like Brian and I did where there's so much material already is if you have something new to say about it, I think. And, and what I find interesting is, you know, no one really wants to see the firm adapted in a true to, you know, true to format thriller sequence what what we want to see is we, i think what's most exciting is when you give that material to someone who really has their own voice and their vision and you say you know make this your own um and while still being true to the material i think that 
those boundaries, you know, having to create within those boundaries of, well, we, are, we know what the world is and the tone is and everything. I think that's a really exciting exercise for, for a writer rather than, than the sort of Marvel philosophy of you can't break any of the mythology, you can't create anything new, it just has to stay within the, the framework of the characters, otherwise the, the nerds will get angry. Well, it does become uh, your offspring in a way because it's your DNA and the DNA of whether of whatever source material it is. You have to have a well balanced baby, otherwise we're not able to do our jobs as writers, which is to communicate our worldview. It is really interesting, though, to, to watch because, you know, you have a show like, uh, like Game of Thrones where every deviation from the original source material is met with a degree of outrage. And then you have your uh, show where every deviation from the source material is met with, oh, that's cool. Look what they did with that. You know, it's like, it's like you have this sort of, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and with, with, with Fargo as well, I assume. Yeah, well, again, I started with nothing from the original, so in some ways that was my strength, and I went, you know, for three hours, and then I threw in a connection to the first year. So just when you thought that there was nothing connecting it to the movie, you know, and I think that those unexpected moments can be really exciting for people. But I think you see now with Game of Thrones, the audience is really excited that they're breaking from, you know, because... It kind of sucks when you know exactly what's going to happen, you know, and you're just going to see how they're going to execute it. I think what's interesting is to do something different from the books. And I think, I mean, obviously, I think that George Double R. Martin is sort of like, what should I do now? How should I finish this? So it's nice of them to finish that for him. As long as they include Lady Stoneheart. Uh, uh, True fanboys. Um, Let's see. Uh, I was talking to Stephen Moffat, who does Sherlock, and he was saying that, uh, you know, I was talking about, about all the fan fiction that gets written about his shows, uh, her show, and, and, and I was asking about that. He was like, and, um, and, he, and he said something really interesting. He was, he was like, you know, I'm writing fan fiction as far, as far as I'm concerned. And it made me wonder whether it ever gets frustrating as an artist to feel like, you know, to some degree that you're echoing the voice of a popular artist rather than doing something that's strictly your own uh, original work. You know, it's a different, it's a different kind of job. Um, and Fred Golan's here. Fred was one of the writers on Justified um, for the full run. And one of the fun things for us was getting to write like Elmore Leonard. Uh, he has a very specific voice, approach to character and dialogue. Um, and just backing up to the other question, I, I don't know the mistakes that people make of adapting anybody's stuff, but there are certain mistakes that people have made adapting Elmore. There have only really been three really great Elmore films, and um, Karen Sisko didn't work as a TV show. And I think part of the problem with people adapting Elmore, and they've tried it something like 35 times, 35 adaptations of his books, is they just take the plot and they don't realize that it's his it's the way the characters express themselves that is the real joy of his writing and Scott Frank understood that when he adapted Out of Sight and Get Shorty and I and Tarantino did with Jackie Brown and so we tried to defo- tried to follow that but anyway so we've gotten to write like Elmore and it was fun for us and one of the weird things is um, you know I'm sitting here at the end in a different position because you guys are still going, you're still doing this. And now we don't get to write like Elmore anymore. 
You know, that time has come and gone. Because if I was to write a script that sounded like Elmore, people would say, hey, you're just writing like Elmore now. You know, whereas we had license to do it for six years. And that was really, that was really fun. It's interesting as showrunners, you're, you know, you try to cultivate your own voice and adapting somebody's material. You're almost going back to a staff writer sensibility where you're trying to mimic somebody else's voice as well as tell your own story. So it is kind of a full circle feeling of, oh, I'm, I'm working on Thomas Harris's staff and I'm trying to emulate his voice. But yeah, but <laughs> either one. It's interesting, though, because there is a modern sensibility in the last 10 years or so, which is about interpretation and reinterpretation. You said the mashup you know, idea, which is almost like nothing's sacred on, on some level. And, and I always felt, you know, even as I, when I started as a, as, a, as a fiction writer, you know, we're just involved in a dialogue as writers with the people who inspire us. And, and um, you know, so when, when we write, we're, it's always an amalgamation of every inspiration that we've had. And you're just sort of saying, well, this was an interesting book that you wrote. Here's what I think in this world. And, and so... I don't know. I find the Coens, there's a very interesting organizing principle. You know, they have a very traditional morality on a certain level. You know, if you transgress, you will be punished. It's almost like a horror movie mentality. And you see it over and over again in, in you know, Blood Simple or Fargo or, or um, uh, No Country for Old Men. And, and, and yet within that framework, you know, you can play with a lot of different elements and... and uh, um, you know, the only real rule that I, you know, that I stick to is you, there's no melodrama. You can't, there's no room for melodrama in, in, in their work. And so you always have to play against emotion and, and play against, I mean, even play against comedy on some level if you're working within the certain tonal, tonal framework of, of their more dramatic movies. So, you know, it's, it is interesting to, to think about what that voice is and then, of course, how you... You know, staff for that voice, and and you know because it's especially when it's a ten-hour movie as opposed to a, an ongoing series. You know, the second year is very different from the first year, so it's not that it's a different voice. In the end, I think you feel the same thing that you feel at the end of the first year, but it's a different. You know, it's a different movie, so it's it, you know that's exciting again to sort of go, okay, well we're reinventing it again now. Um. Let's see. And there's also the issue of often the original creator uh, being around to potentially have their own opinion or own thoughts or weigh in. Uh, you know, um, and, you know, as, as we mentioned with uh, Game of Thrones. Um, now, last time I spoke to you, you had not heard from the mysterious Thomas Harris, which has to be a little bit unnerving that the creator of Hannibal Lecter is out there just judging you <laughs> silently. <laughs> Uh, I'm not entirely convinced he exists. <laughs> I, I, the only interaction I've had with him is through Martha De Laurentiis, so I'm assuming he's in a zipper mask and a ball gag in a steamer trunk at the foot of her bed. <laughs> what if he just like called you out of the blue one day and it was just like, you know that scene you wrote last week just really pissed me off? Or sort of stuff, would that just like blow your mind if you just got some out-of-the-blue call from... Yeah, I would. <laughs> I would be like, you exist? It's no. like God coming down and saying, yeah. it's like, you're, you're real? Yeah. But it, it's, it's, it's weird with him, because I'm, I'm so fascinated by it, because it's weird that somebody is so good at what they do and is so successful at what they do and does what they do so rarely. 
in, in terms of publishing a book. Oh yeah, you know, it's. It, I feel like he may be out there writing a Clarice and Will Graham story because both of those characters were left hanging, and that's certainly where I would go in the series is try to figure out how to get those two characters together in a strange way. But in the novel, the last we saw Clarice, she was brainwashed and Hannibal Lecter's lover. Right. So I, I would actually be curious to read what happens next. Right. I mean, do you, do you, are you just speculating, or is that some on some inside? Novel? No, that's that's that's. Oh no, yeah, I'm speculating. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Based so on where sure we're we're left. breaking some huge news. Let's see. And uh, no. Uh, yeah, it has to be odd. You know, I saw. I was in New York uh, last week, and I saw Joel and Ethan, and and um, it's. You know, I don't bring it up. We don't talk about. The, sh- the show really you know it's I think it must be odd for them when we premiered you know last year in New York and you saw all the billboards and I mean far more marketing than was ever done for the original movie um, so yeah you know we just sort of I see them I sort of force myself in in and to sort of just to say hi really and keep keep things going but but I don't think they're they exist in in a bubble, you know, and we want them in that bubble, this creative bubble that they're that they're in to do the movies that they do. And so, you know, they, they'll ask some questions, you know, about, you know, and I'll tell them, hey, you guys want a Peabody? And they're like, we well, have yeah, for all the hard work that we that we did. But but they're, <laughs> um, you know, it's it's hard to talk about on some level because. You know, it's one of the greatest thrills of my life was when they read that first script and they said very nice things to me about it. Uh, at the same time, I don't necessarily expect them to ever read another script or watch another episode because I think the downside outweighs the upside, which is like, what if it gets really bad? You know, like, let's leave it on a high note where it's like, they liked it, just go do it. And, and I think they're kind of amazed at this sort of phenomenon that's just kind of going on um, in their name on, on some level, so... I mean, on one hand, it's 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 good to like not have any uh, interference or, or, or in terms of your writing, but at the same time, uh, you must have moments when you're writing where you sort of have that. I wonder what they would think of that moment. Yeah, you, you know, you sort of have to put that stuff out of out of your head. I mean, there was certainly a moment last year when I met them for the first time, and and um, you know, I said, well. I might like at some point to have a conversation about filmmaking with you just as I have to now turn this into a movie. And they looked horrified at the idea that, you know, because they don't like to talk about their work or or any of it, and I I respect that. Um, But it was just then up to me to go off and interpret it. And if I get it wrong, I get it wrong. But, but, um, you know, I, I think what's great about them is that they... They're not interested in the notes process or anything like that. I mean, you have a vision for something and you just go off and make it, and that's you know that's that's the, that's what you do. And Graham, you were blessed to have uh, Elmore, you know, helping advise and and steer you a little bit uh, throughout the years on Justified. Yeah, he passed away during season end of season four, was it? Fred? Yeah, and um, listen, the best review we ever got on the show was that he got a kick out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he he. He was a great guy, and he was a lot of fun to hang out with. He would give us no notes. We had a struggle over what hat Raylan would wear. That was, <laughs> that was the big thing. He, um, he was you know, more interested in what was called the businessman Stetson, and that's kind of what Raylan ended up wearing at the end of the show. Um, but he, he had been a screenwriter 
in the 60s and 70s and hated getting notes. Mm. Just didn't like that job for that reason. And so he never gave us notes. And he just, um, he just enjoyed the show and would talk it up, and that was great. Um, but, you know, listen, the, our whole reason for being was him. I mean, we were all, we were doing a show, everyone involved, we were all pulling in that direction. I'm still wearing the silly bracelet that I got for the writers in the first season. They stopped wearing them after two weeks. They just showed that they had them and that I had given them, and they were happy for that. And they were, I'm still wearing mine, and it says WWED, what would Elmore do? Wow. And uh, because he, you know, we had to keep true to that, um, or we would be lost. That became our, our guiding our guiding light, our, our pole star. Um, we, we were talking about fans uh, being uh, upset earlier, and, and I, I've been sort of fascinated with the sort of rise of sort of fandom outrage and how it seems to get louder every year. And Brian, you, you and I were, were talking the other day about this, that, uh, that uh, you know, it's... And all, you, you guys are, are fortunate in that, you know, all your shows have received tremendous positive fan support, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about the sort of rise of... Of fan outrage online because it's 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 often circles around uh, adaptations and sometimes more than other shows because there's a certain emotional connection to the original work and and uh, and and fans can feel pretty upset or violated if, if you if you sort of detour from that in a, in a certain way. I'm wondering if you all have had experiences with that and and uh, what those have been like. Most of my experiences have been relatively positive and, and we've done some radical departures. <laughs> With the homoeroticization of these <laughs> characters, um, that uh, really the, the most vitriol I experienced is when we killed off a character in season two who was an Asian woman, and I was a racist and a misogynist for doing that, and I just thought, eh. <laughs> I guess if that's how you feel, and you, you don't have any control over it, so, and there's also, you, the psychology of that outrage and you get that adrenal rush of outrage where you're like, hey, I am dignified in the way I feel because I feel it so strongly and I have to express it, that there's, I'm fascinated with it because it reminds me of, you know, being in college and not being able to hear happy holiday or Merry Christmas because it should be happy holidays because what if I was Jewish, even though I was raised Catholic. But that's sort of like, it's just... There's a lot of um, adolescent hormonal imbalances that I think contribute to the rage, um, and also the the social retardation of social media. <laughs> uh, the metaphor you used on the uh, the metaphor you used on the phone hasn't left my head, and you 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 said uh, outrage is the is the uh, nitro in our war boy machines. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, it is. Uh, well, you know, there's art and there's commerce, right? And and obviously, you know, if we, if we can call what we do art on on any level, you know, which is created by an artist, obviously, uh, you know, you have to be true to to your vision of the work. And and so, at a certain point, you know, for better or worse, um, what matters is that you get it right in your own mind. And and um, you know. Obviously, some people are going to like some choices better than others. You know, I know that, that we had, uh, um, you know, built this whole season around Alison Tolman's character. And then, 
you know, at, at the end of the day, was she the one who pulled the trigger? She she wasn't. Um, but, you know, what was important, I think, you know, she got to be chief. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, she solved it. It was her whole thing. And then, you know, and then her husband had a journey that he was taking as well. Um, and, um, you know, but again, I sort of tricked you because I set it up where you felt she went out and it was going to be her and then... You know, if, if I did it right, you kind of forget that that Gus was even there, and you know. So I wanted there to be some surprise to it, but it pays off in the end. Um, everything that I set up paid off, uh, and I think that's the hallmark of a good story. And whether I made, you know, I mean, what I always you can't say to the executives, but who give you notes, but but a note, you know, is this is confusing, or I see what you're going for. Um, and I don't think you achieved it. A note is not I would do it differently. You know what I mean? So it's like I'm, it's my show and I made these choices and, and I certainly want people to go on the ride and feel what, what is intended for them to feel. But I'm not always going to make the same choices that, that somebody else would make for, for these characters. So, um, you know, you just have to stand by that. Um, well, the, the fan reaction, the thing is, is that these three shows, we we share a thing where we, we have a starting point and then we had to go our own way. And it's very different than if you're, if you're doing Game of Thrones or Fred's wife is on Outlander. And, you, you know, especially in the first season, you can't deviate much or people are going to scream. And, frankly, that's the reason that they bought the property. They bought the property because they want those readers. And so if you do deviate too much, then, you know, why did you buy the property? But... Um, yeah, we had a, a different relationship. I, we would get some pushback in certain areas on certain seasons or storylines, but for the most part, people were engaged with our world more than they were devoted Elmore fans. They became fans of our show. It was we who were the devoted Elmore fans. Um, when I was interviewing uh, Joss Whedon last year, he said he was talking about... Um, uh, whether he would do uh, Firefly again or other, you know, reboot Firefly. And he said he didn't want to do it because it's very important that we should be creating new worlds, not just endlessly revisiting uh, old ones. And with the surge of you know, uh, reboots and revivals that we're seeing now, I mean, do you think that there's some truth to that? I mean, even as, as you know, showrunners on adapted works. Absolutely. Um, I think that... There is such a glut of uh, reboots and reimaginings, but when they're good, they're good, and, and I don't care. And, and there is, I understand the sentimentality, and I understand, like, oh, it's familiar, and yet they're doing something different. That's kind of the best of both worlds because it's a gateway drug into a whole new story. Um, and, you know, after working on a show for three years, that's. You know that is an application of my skill set interpreting somebody else's world. I do yearn to go back to creating something that's more signature to me. Just because uh, there will be people don't talk how I talk in Hannibal. It's all very purple and inflated, and it's fun to do. But it is a sense of of mimicry that uh, um, I think can be confining at times yeah it's interesting because I don't you know again they said hey here's a painting of a city can you paint the same 
painting without any of these buildings in it. Like it's, you know, it's nothing that I'm doing is actually an adaptation of a Coen Brothers work on a certain level. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's a um, it's a tone of voice and it's a kind of sensibility, but but. You know, you'll see the second year is a completely new story with, you know, which unfolds in a very different way and doesn't sort of follow the rules that the first season laid out. So, you know, I think for me it was really this, it gave me this leeway to do things that I wouldn't have been able to get away with otherwise. You know what I mean? Like, if I'd gone to FX and said, yes, I need a 10-minute parable sequence in this original creation of mine, they might have said, well, that's not you know you can't do that or you know but the fact that i was able to you know point to just the sort of rampant creativity of the cohen's world it allowed me to then not copy them and do the things that they were doing but to try to come up with my own version of those things so um yeah i don't know i mean it's it's interesting obviously in in the context of this um this thing that we do in adapting stories or or just coming up with shows obviously the reason that they wanted to do it was because there was a brand there that would cut through the 300 plus other shows that are out there and 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 get you those eyeballs um and you know we've all been on shows that get canceled after a year i mean it it sucks you know it's much better if you can know that you're going to be going for a while and the great thing with fx is i knew that they weren't going to cancel my show that the audience would watch all 10 hours however little it was and you'd be judged on on the the work that you did so um yeah i mean i think it's good to do all of it you know and and i like this idea of the anthology show because you are innovating every year you're not sort of stuck in a you know 10 years uh doing the same thing and then being defined by that you know i think we have the opportunity to kind of create a, a, a larger body of work which is exciting yeah in terms of the reboots um you know it all depends what the how the how well they do it and we were talking briefly before i mean when mad max fury road was announced i thought well that's good because i love the road warrior thought thunderdome was okay but little did i know that i was going to go to the theater and see the best movie ever made <laughs> i didn't know except my nephew had called me and said you have to go now my son called me in the morning what are you doing tonight you have to go see this so um and but i've only seen it twice so i can't really judge it um, but you know that one worked out I listen to the soundtrack in my car, which is not a good idea. It's so dangerous. I do the same thing. It's so good. (laughs) It's a wonderful day. You you look down. I got a speeding ticket. You you did? Listening to the Mad Max Fury Road soundtrack. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yesterday. Uh, How how, how fast? How fast? 85. (laughs) Were you using the nitro? Was that it? Were you using nitro? Was that it? Uh, It was was actually a hybrid, so it was very... I mean, the composer's name is Junkie XL, which tells you all you need to know. It just, like, uh, uh, uh. turns every car into the war machine. <laughs> um, let's see, is, is there uh, one work out there that you would be willing to publicly admit that you would love the opportunity to adapt into a show? Geek Love. I love that book. And uh, when I saw American Horror Story, I was like, 
fuck you. <laughs> I love geek love, and and it's such an amazing story of family and the strange things that we do as a family unit that uh, I would love to adapt that. Uh, I'd like to try to get Kurt Vonnegut right. I don't think anyone's been able to do that. I think the two-hour format is not the right format for something so innovative and mm. and and you know that that tone of voice and and the inventiveness of of that work. So, <laughs> just another Mad Max movie. <laughs> <laughs> we we can spend the rest of the time talking about Mad Max. If, if, if you like. Um, yeah, you, you brought up uh, the number of hours uh, a couple times. Uh, you know, I mean, I think it's pretty much a general consensus, right? That shorter, for the most part, for TV is better and is liberating, even if it means not necessarily you know making as much money or, or, or whatnot. Uh, but in terms of that, I mean, you know, um, it, has that been pretty much an accepted great thing for showrunners? This this idea of doing shorter and shorter seasons. Absolutely, it's uh, doing thirteen. Ep- I remember one of my first job on Star Trek was twenty four episodes a season, a season, and it was it was a stupid amount of work because right around episode thirteen, everybody was exhausted. So thirteen through seventeen were shitty episodes because everybody's like, "Well, let's just have a spaceship possess Tom Paris because uh, you're just so tired." And then you're like, "Oh my God, we're screwing it up." We're, and then you get your energy back around eighteen or nineteen and kind of plow through. So thirteen is so exhausting that um, I can't imagine doing more now. And it allows my OCD to be as meticulous as I can in the time constraints. So I feel like 10 is, is the sweet spot. Because right about 10, you're like, oh, if we were doing 10 episodes, we would be done. And it's such a strange... Because show running is the stupidest job in the world in terms of the amount of work and the amount of of plate spinning that you have to do. So doing more is bad. <laughs> we could all move to England where a season is, there's going to be three episodes. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> that's not a job. That's a hobby. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think that the story should dictate yeah, how long it is, you know what I mean? And and we sort of came at 10 ar- kind of arbitrarily just to distinguish it from a season of, of television, but it turned out to be the perfect length because any longer and you have to introduce another story, you know what I mean? Like, and 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 so it felt like to set it up in the first half and pay it off in the second half, that felt like a perfect number of hours. But if I'd had to do 13, then I would have had to come up with some other element to then introduce and and it's it starts to take on a different shape you know because it just um you know you you want it to feel complete and like it builds in the right way and pays off in the right way and you don't ever want those filler episodes where it feels like okay well they're just vamping because you know they've got to fill their order we uh we break down 13 episodes into two chapters so we have a seven episode season and a six episode season which allows us to tell two different stories have two different climaxes and it's so much easier to put things in bite-sized digestible pieces than to spread it out because i'm 
I'm not in the mind of the episodic anymore. It just it doesn't interest me, and it's not character based. So um, I love splitting it into splitting even a small season into two seasons. Actually, gives us a lot of of nitro. Yeah, and I, I think it's just so much more attractive as as a viewer too. It's like you know you you have that that commitment you make in your head, oh, 10, 13 episodes, okay, I, I can handle that. And when I, like, watch, like, uh, Silicon Valley, I'm just like, oh, my God, there's only this many more left, you know? So it, it increases my eagerness and desire as a, as a viewer. It's, it's daunting, especially when you're binge-watching and you're like, oh, it's only 10 episodes. That's, two, that's, that's the flight to New York and it's the flight back. I can, <laughs> I can do a season in a trip. So it, it does, fewer episodes become so much more appealing right. to as an audience member because I just don't have 22 hours to commit to one show. Uh, we should open up to some questions, see if anyone has any questions. Uh, yes, go ahead. You all uh, spoke about rights a little bit. Uh, could you talk about what the process is for determining, especially when you're adapting from several works, what the process is for determining what you can use, what you can't use, what you want to use, and how that all comes together? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, one of the harder things with older material is how convoluted the rights can be sometimes, you know, of who owns what and people's have claims to things and you know I, I, for me we obviously we have the rights to the movie Fargo and we don't have the rights to any of the other movies and and so you know I'm not stealing plots or anything from from other films um but you know the process in in trying to secure the rights is either you reach out to the rights holder which is usually the author if it's a book or or um you know, if it's a movie or a TV show, it could be a little convoluted too. But who's the studio that made it? And and um, you know, you you have to work out a deal. Usually, there's an option um, period, which is a smaller sum of money. And then if you actually go ahead and make it, then there are all these you know, you, there, there are all these other um, components to the deal. And usually, you know, for us, that those deals are done by the studios that we work with. So it's not like we're in the trenches hammering out hammering out a deal. Sometimes you are. The, 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 uh, on Hannibal, we, the rights were, kind of, were odd because the, Martha De Laurentiis had the rights to Red Dragon, but the rights are not broken down by book. They're broken down by characters in the book and the origin. So any character that originated in Red Dragon, we have access to. Any character that originated in Silence of the Lambs, we don't have access to. Any character that's in the other books, we have to pay like a $3,500 rental fee per episode <laughs> for that character, per character. It's like sometimes it's a bit more. So like the Vergers, we had to rent from the people who had the book Hannibal. So it's, uh, and I, I keep on going back to MGM every year and saying, can we have more than Clarice, I want Buffalo Bill. Like, that's the story that I feel like we could really unpack in an interesting way. So, uh, but they're like, what's ours is ours, and what's yours is yours, and, and I, I, I am trying to figure out a way to make it mutually beneficial to both studios. So, and that's the thing. They're, they have their own series that they've been developing for a while, and it hasn't got traction, so, because I've been, I have a voodoo doll, and I'm sticking pins. <laughs> 
in that. And so hopefully, I would love for this show to be a definitive Hannibal story and include Clarice. But right now, MGM, uh, who almost had all of the Hannibal deals in, in their grasp, and it was one of those where like, they had the meeting and they were going to get the rights to Red Dragon as well. And then Galmont swooped in and offered a bigger, better deal. And then they were like, fuck you, you're not getting Clarice. So um, we have to figure out how to circumvent that fuck. I'll call them. <laughs> I'll call them. They like me. Oh, good, good. Please, please. Yeah, so we had the rights to the story. And as I said earlier, we got some other rights to writing the rap for one episode. Um, and then there were limitations of any other characters we could bring in. Um, so when Carla Gugino, who had played Karen Sisko on ABC's show, showed up in season two or three, Fred, do you remember? Three. Let's just say it was three. What the hell? It's all done now. <laughs> um, Car- Carla came and she was absolutely not playing Karen Sisko, even though her first name was Karen. <laughs> she was now Karen Goodall, and the fact that the Sisko kid's real name was Goodall, the complete coincidence. So. <laughs> Uh, someone else have a question? Hi, um, my question's for Brian. Um, I was just wondering, do you feel more pressure this season? Because in the past, you know, nobody knows what Hannibal Lecter was like when he was um, when he was practicing. Nobody knows really what Will and Hannibal's conversations were like. But now we're entering in that red dragon world, so it's all kind of laid out for um, the viewer. So I was just wondering if you feel any stress from that. Um, it was the, the stress was all of the great chunks of Red Dragon that we used in the first two seasons, and then when we got to this scene, there was, there was one point where, uh, and I would try to be very careful about not doing this, because I knew even in season one when I was taking passages and weaving them into the story that there was going to be some overlap, and I was just thinking, like, okay, future me will just come up with something similar that's not exactly, and I got a call from Hugh Dancy once uh, in the third season when we were doing the Red Dragon arc, and he's like, didn't I, didn't I say this to Abigail in the first season? And I was like, Fuck, yes, you did. Like, <laughs> I had to go back, because there's so many things that I cut out and I put in in the scripts, and then like almost a quarter of dialogue is cut out of of, our scripts are like 36 pages long. They're they're very short. So um, I cut out so much that I put in there, and I think, okay. And the actors are always like, I said this before, and I was like, yes, it's a great quote from the books, and I cut it out so you can say it again. And uh, that, that was the biggest stressor, because it's, it's actually kind of a relief to know, well, this story works. So now I just have to put gravy on the meat and make sure that it's succulent. Let's see. Do you want to do a quick tease of uh, your upcoming seasons with Graham with uh, with Americans and uh, and just sort of run down the line? So, um, well, actually, I'll start with season seven of Justified. <laughs> uh, okay. Little Boyd grows up. Yeah. Yeah. Mary's little Raylan girl. No, I don't know. I got. No, I'm not going to tease the Americans. It's going to be an amazing season. The guys are already working on it because they wanted yeah. to break. Uh, in the summer, so uh, it's it's pretty awesome. Uh, I don't know. What do I want to say, or what am I allowed to say? Um, y- y- you know, I set up this thing in the first year. Of, uh, 
you know, at first it was just a backstory for Keith Carradine's character to talk about the massacre at Sioux Falls and, and um, you know, a case that he'd seen in his youth that he could sort of warn his daughter, like, I've seen this kind of thing before. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I thought, well, that's, that's really interesting to think, well, if we're going to do another year of this, how... I like the idea that it's connected in some way. So, um, so I set it up more going forward. Um, so yeah, this this year um, is the story of young uh, Luce Alverson, who's um, now played by Patrick Wilson, and and uh, um, you know Molly uh, is now is a six year old girl. It's uh, she's not a six year old boy; she's a six year old girl. And it's uh, 1979. The story takes place in 1979, and it's it's that story of of what happened in in Sioux Falls. Um, and you know we see the young Ben Schmidt, who was uh, um, Gus's boss, and and um, uh, you know that's all I'll really say about it, um, except that you know what one of the things that I really loved about it was was the time period and trying to make the this nineteen the seventies into more than just a setting, but to try to figure out well what were the real struggles going on and how do you turn that into a crime story? So sounds great. I, I'm hoping. <laughs> Um, this this season on Hannibal, which we just started uh, a couple nights ago, um, it's there's two chapters. One is the Italian chapter. That's an amalgamation of Hannibal and Hannibal Rising, and that's the first seven episodes that gets into some fun stuff from the Hannibal movie and some different idiosyncrasies from the book. And then our second half is a six-episode Red Dragon miniseries. So that allows us to really dig deep and uh, try not to repeat the great passages of dialogue that we may have used from the book in previous seasons. (laughs) And you got uh, Neil Marshall to direct episode eight, The Great Red Dragon, which is a pretty good uh, score. He did the... the, the, Penultimate, anti-penultimate. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. He, he's he's done you know several major uh, action episodes of Thrones, among other things. The big uh, giant attack on the wall. That was his episode. Yeah, it was great to work with him because I think The Descent is the best horror movie of this century. And uh, so I met him at an HBO Emmy party and uh, marched up to him and said, "Would you direct the first episode of the Red Dragon series?" And he said, "Absolutely." So. Um, it's it's great because there's there's hardly any dialogue in it, and uh, you're with. We get to introduce the Francis Dollarhide character before he was a horrible murderer of families, and the whole goal of that was because in reading the book, I was so uh, sympathetic to his insanity and his struggle with his insanity that frequently forgot that. Oh yeah, he. He killed those people and, and raped their corpses. Um, so that was kind of fun to to, uh, to try to confuse the audience. And Neil was the was such a collaborative visual storyteller that uh, I'm very proud of the episode. And I think it's it's new and different enough to people who've seen Manhunter and Red Dragon. It's a it's a new version of the character. And I think that's one of the really exciting things about sort of modern television is. It's it's a cinematic medium now, you know. It's it's about telling the story with the camera, um, and I'm always you know thrilled when I could have four or five pages without dialogue, where you're just telling the story with the camera and you know building suspense, but also allowing the characters to have moments and let let things breathe. And you know, FX is great on that level because 
I've yet to make a 42 and a half minute episode for them. It's always, you know, I'm always skirting 50 minutes or even, you know, our opener last year was 68 minutes long. So, you know, the problem is I have to make what turns out to be 13 hours of television um, in a 10 episode box. So that's my fault. You know, it's like that I say to them, well, you know, we had all these long episodes and they're like, well, you don't have to, you know, they're, but they're not going to pay more for them, you know. So we just have to get cleverer with how we shoot stuff. And I, I just noticed you're wearing a uh, uh, this is a true story bracelet, yeah. and with uh, Graham and his Elmer Laird bracelet, I think uh, Brian bracelet. needs some sort of yeah. collector related wrist jewelry. It like should be human out. teeth or something. <laughs> I have a Hannibal Lecter Prince Albert. Does <laughs> <laughs> sure. uh, anybody have a question off that or about that or something else? Yes. So with you guys, um, I guess, adapting and you want to stay true to the original source material, was there a certain point where you, you started feeling complete ownership of your own product, like a moment where you're like, this is now mine? Is that a little weird question? No, it's actually a really good question. Um, I guess I, for me on Hannibal... It, I feel like I've skinned Thomas Harris and I'm walking around in his, his, his person suit in a way because they're, like, he's always present because there's so... Whenever I get lost writing a scene or I'm like, what is this scene about? I'll just start reading the books again and then I'll be like, oh, that's what the scene is about. And it's not even in context of the scene that I'm writing, but I'll find a passage that actually is about the characters in a way or has a turn of phrase that's so poetic that I want to put it in there so I Thomas Harris in our in our writer's room I basically say every scene should be one third Thomas Harris one third real genuine psychology and one third our special sauce and so every scene has Thomas Harris in him in it and uh, I don't think he intended some of the stuff that we're doing but um, I I still feel like it's his story that I'm telling yeah, I think you'd be paralyzed if if you felt like you had to check in even even mentally at every step of the way to go. Well, is this a real Coen Brothers moment or is this a real Thomas Harris, you know, um, moment? But um, certainly, we we should never forget, you know, who provided this opportunity for us to tell stories in this in this way. And and um, you know what I. What I love about um, Joel and Ethan is that they don't care. They're so down to earth. You know what I mean? That 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 it. You know, and they told me they said, "Look, it's not our medium. We don't. You know, but you seem like you know what you're doing. So go and do your thing." And so I sort of took that to heart, and I'm going to do my thing. And I don't know. Maybe they they would watch something and go, "We would never do that." But at a certain point, you just have to take ownership creatively in making choices for how to tell these stories. And and you know, I I'm fully risk. You know, um, you know. Someone asked me at the TCAs last year, "What's the subtitle for Fargo Year Two? And I said, "It's going to be called Fargo Backlash." You know, because <laughs> I mean, it's got to come at some point, I would imagine. But, but um, you know, I mean, for better or worse, um, we tell the stories we tell, and you know, people will like some more than others. I think, as we like some Coen Brothers movies more than others. You know. Hey, 
I got He's good. Add. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there one piece of work out there that, like a popular title that you could see realistically being adapted for a series, but that nobody should ever touch? Don't make The Matrix as a television series. <laughs> <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to say because I think that the don't make that has been applied to everybody on this panel. Like there's been that approach and, and we've all found interesting ways into the material. So it's hard to say never mm-hmm. do something. Um, because so I was like, I could see an interesting Matrix TV series. It <laughs> could be something interesting there. Yeah, or Full House. I'd love to see Full House. Again. Fuller House. <laughs> uh, Grammy thoughts? Yeah, Full House. But it should be Brian Fuller House. Yes. Oh, there, should be there you go. Weird What's going on in the house. attic? Oh, boy. Yeah. Who ate the Olsen twin? It would just we be... just have one. <laughs> it would just be too many cooks, like, over. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, any last question? Uh, so, Brian, um, you mentioned how with Hannibal you were somewhat emulating someone's voice um, and maybe wanted to get outside of that eventually, but you're about to leap back into American Gods. So, was that. I know, I know! Is that just something that you couldn't pass up, and how's that going? Yes, it was, it was something that uh, I had met Neil Gaiman a couple of times, and he's a great seductor of men so um, it was hard it's just it's such a great toy box and um, Michael Green and I who worked on the first season of Heroes together we had you know I was raised Catholic, he was raised Jewish, and we both have a fascination with these great mythological stories. And we were talking one day uh, over lunch about how we wanted to work together again on something. And then um, American Gods uh, came up. And um, once again, it felt like a way to really unpack a story and there's so much of that book that is a story of shadow and Wednesday and our approach is almost anthological but we wouldn't tell the network anthological in that we get to see like Bill Quist uh, who we see eat a man with her vagina in one chapter in the book and is never heard or seen from again she's a main character and we get to tell stories that start in 5,000 years ago in ancient Babylonia and and then see how she came to the modern day so it feels like there's a lot of room and Neil Gaiman has given us a lot of room to really to dig into the characters and he shared them with us and it's an immigration story really at its heart so it feels like we can unpack that in a way that allows us to tell a signature story well uh that's it uh thanks guys Let, let's uh, give it up for our panel thank you thanks for coming out Now leaving Nerdist.com.